Father, we look to you this morning. We're grateful for the truth of your word, your faithfulness to speak. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come with power, that you would remind those of us who are yours through faith in Christ what we've been saved from and who we've been saved to. Don't let the message of the gospel grow cold in our hearts. And I pray specifically, Holy Spirit, for those who are here this morning who can hear my voice who haven't yet trusted Christ, I pray that you would work powerfully this morning. Help them to see things they have never seen before about your mercy on such clear display in the work of Christ. We look to you now in his name. Amen. Here's Jonah's problem. Jonah's problem is that he wants mercy for himself and he wants judgment for others. Jonah wants God's mercy for himself and he wants God's judgment for others. And this isn't a problem that's unique to Jonah. This is a problem we all can relate to very quickly. And Jesus tells a story, a parable, to help us understand. There was a king who wanted to settle accounts with servants who owed him money. And there was one particular servant that owed 10,000 talents, an insurmountable number that would be impossible to repay. And so the king orders that this servant that owed him much would be sold along with his family and all that he had in order to start to repay the debt. Now, the servant with desperate sadness pleads with the king for mercy. And as the servant is pleading with the king for mercy, compassion and pity well up in the heart of the king to the point where he forgives the debt completely. He wipes the slate of that particular servant clean. Now, we expect this man to be transformed by the king's mercy. We expect this man to be the most generous man in all the land. But when the same servant goes out of the palace, he stumbles right away across another servant who owes him a small amount of money. And he grabs the man by the throat and begins to choke him, demanding that he repay the small amount that's owed. The man who owes little begs the man who has been forgiven much for a bit of time. Just give me a little bit of time to work and pay off the debt that I owe you. And the man who has been forgiven much grabs the man, drags him to debtor's prison, and throws him in. Now, when the other servants observe what's happened here, observe the man who has been forgiven much, demand that the man who owes him little be thrown into prison. They go to the king, and the king is understandably furious. What a flagrant offense to justice. How could this servant, forgiven so much, not be transformed by mercy. Jonah 4 should confront us for wanting mercy for ourselves and judgment for others. Jonah 4 should urge us toward God's compassionate heart for the faith and repentance of those who do not know him, sinners like us. Jonah 4 should teach us to have our hearts beat in rhythm with God's heart. Sober about sin, glad about mercy. And we can't do that if we wander away from the cross. And so the main idea this morning 
is that we would shelter near the cross where justice and mercy meet. Shelter near the cross remembering what we've been saved from and saved to. It's when we stay near the cross that our own sin generates humility toward others and God's mercy generates gladness. So let's begin in verses 1 through 4 with the angry prophet. Now, we half expect the wild curveball that we get in chapter 4. After all, Jonah has been half-hearted in his obedience and his repentance throughout this book. We're midstream in a massive revival in the city of Nineveh. A genuine revival is consuming the people as God's awakening grace comes in power into Nineveh. Yet Jonah is angry, angry enough to die. Look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. To Jonah, this all seems so totally wrong. What God has done feels completely out of line. He burns with anger. He does not agree with God's decision to show mercy toward the Ninevites. In fact, the Hebrew language here is so strong, it may even indicate that Jonah feels that God has done something morally wrong by forgiving the Ninevites. How could you forgive the Ninevites? What you've done is ra'ah, that word we had in Jonah chapter 1 that's been repeated over and over again throughout the book. This feels disastrous. This feels malignant. This feels evil to Jonah's heart. And so he's angry. Now, the book of Jonah doesn't tell us explicitly why Jonah hates Ninevites. We can make guesses, but it doesn't tell us explicitly why he hates the Ninevites. But we do know that Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's arch enemies at this time. In fact, just a hundred years from now, the Assyrians would overthrow the northern kingdom of Israel. And as we saw last week, the Ninevites are bloodthirsty, violent, and ruthless people. And Jonah knows from the very beginning that God was going to show mercy to them. He knows what happens when God's mercy, when God's word comes in power. Look at verse 2. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah prays, right? That's a start. He prays. He's frustrated with God, and he turns to God with his anger. This is why I ran. You didn't just send me with a promise of approaching judgment. It included an implicit offer of mercy, an offer to turn from judgment, to turn from sin, and to turn to me. I know your heart is gracious and merciful, I know your anger is slow. I know that your love is abounding and steadfast. I know that you relent from the disaster and turn from it. That's why I didn't want to go. That's why I fled to Joppa. That's why I ran to Tarshish. I knew that you would do this very thing. The question is, how does Jonah know that God acts this way? How did Jonah know that God would relent and turn from disaster if the Ninevites turned to him? Jonah knew his Bible. 
all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, we see this theme. For example, Joel 2, verse 13. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Or Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he had made. Jonah knows his Bible. He knows what God is like. But Jonah also experienced mercy for himself. That's the whole thrust of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. Thankfulness over God's mercy. He rebelled against God's word and he ran from God. And then God hurls a storm at the ship and then the sailors hurl Jonah into the sea and then God brings the great fish to swallow Jonah. And in the belly of that fish, Jonah prays and thanks God for his mercy. I cried from the pit of the deeps. I called out in my distress and you answered me. My life was fainting away and my prayer came came up to your holy temple, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah knew that God was a source of mercy. He had experienced God's compassion and mercy himself. And the fact that he can't get both things, mercy for himself and judgment for his enemies, causes Jonah's face to twist up in anger. Look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah would rather die than to be a part of God's merciful dealings with the Ninevites. We have to be really careful with unchecked anger. Really careful with unchecked anger. It can take us to dangerous places. Jonah fortifies a position on a hill opposite God, and he stands there stubbornly, refusing to take part in what God is doing. He's moved beyond biblical lament, which is humble, desperate, honest questioning of God. That's not what Jonah's doing. This is venomous anger toward God over what God is doing. But God's not tired of Jonah yet, which is a plot line in this story that is one of the most amazing plot lines we have. How could God not be through with Jonah. Instead, God comes to Jonah with a question that should lay open Jonah's heart. Look at verse 4. The Lord said, very simply, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, is it just for you to be angry over my mercy to the Ninevites? Is that a just feeling? You are charging me with wrongdoing, but is that right of you? God lets the question hang in the air. It should be clear to Jonah, and it probably is, that I can't at the same time rejoice in God's mercy toward me and be angry when he shows mercy to others. But Jonah's heart is beating out of rhythm with God's heart. He's out of sync. And that's the problem here. Jonah's heart is out of tune with God's. Something is influencing Jonah's heart toward the Ninevites more than God. His heart remains untouched in certain areas by God's grace. 
yes to mercy for me, but absolutely no to mercy for them. No mercy for that group. No mercy for that person. Who is it for you? Or have you not cast yourself as Jonah in this story? I enjoy God's abundant mercy when I'm the focus of it. But can I rejoice in God's mercy toward others, especially those my heart has made my enemies? Can I rejoice when God shows mercy to them? Now, the quick answer is yes. We quickly respond yes to that question. But in practice, our hearts can be empty of compassion. Is your heart beating with God's? Here are three questions coming right out of the text. Are we slow to anger like God's? If we want to know if our heart is beating in rhythm with God's, ask yourself this question, are we slow to anger like God, slow to anger toward others? When someone takes advantage of your time or damages your reputation or takes something that you were playing with, kids, or speaks to you in a condescending manner, are you slow to anger like God is slow to anger? Is your heart beating with his or like a fool do you let your anger show at once? Second, are we gracious and merciful like God? If we want to know if our heart is in rhythm with God's, are we gracious and merciful like He is? Do we overlook insults? Are we quick to forgive and committed to forgive when it gets hard? Do we turn the other cheek when someone mistreats us? Do we return a gentle answer in the face of someone's wrath? Are we dispensing the grace that we've received from the Lord, or are we a dead end of grace and mercy? Are you gracious and merciful like God? Third question is, do you abound in steadfast love like God? If you're wondering if your heart is beating in rhythm with God's, do you abound in steadfast love? Do you abound in love when Christians line up differently than you do politically? Are you known for radical countercultural love in the middle of the divisive, fracturing time in our culture? Do you abound in love when someone passionately takes their stand to the right or the left of you. Put that person in your mind, whoever it is for you, do you abound in steadfast love for them? Steadfast love does not equal agreement. You can love them with abounding steadfast love and disagree with them and challenge their logic. That's not what I'm saying. But can you view them as an image bearer? Someone made in God's image, someone precious to him, someone deserving of respect. The solution here, if you're like me and you look at this and you think, good grief, my heart is out of tone with God's. The solution here is to shelter near the cross. Jonah felt his sin was small and his need for mercy, therefore, was small. Jonah felt the Ninevites' sin was huge and their need for mercy was huge. He's out of touch. Jonah didn't have the cross, though. We have the benefit of the cross to rebuke and to encourage us. And we can shelter near the cross. And when we stay there in our thinking... And in our emotions, when we shelter near the cross, when we don't wander away from what Christ accomplished there, 
then we can think rightly about what we've been saved from, rightly about our own sin, letting our sin take its proper place in our view so that when we look at others, we're looking at them, understanding what I've been saved from and who I've been saved to. That's what tunes our heart to God's heart so that we love others the way that God loves them, so that we're dispensers, not dead ends of God's grace. There's a lot of places we can turn, but here's Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Dead in trespasses and sins, legal demands standing against us, and Jesus takes them all and he nails them to the cross and he sets us free. Shelter near the cross. It tunes our heart to beat with God's. It rebukes spiritual pride and it produces humility. And that's what God will challenge Jonah to see in verses 5 through 11. The merciful God. You see, God isn't only merciful to the Ninevites. God is merciful to Jonah. He's still moving toward Jonah. His awakening grace is still in hot pursuit of this angry prophet that refuses to be moved and transformed completely by God's grace. God has not written Jonah off, and God has not written you or I off. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth, a shelter for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah grabs a chair, he grabs some popcorn, and he sets himself up outside the city to see exactly what God was going to do. Maybe my argument, maybe my anger and my self-pity, maybe my whining has changed God's mind. Maybe he will destroy Nineveh. And so he sits out there in the shade and he waits to see what will happen. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now, this is primarily about God's object lesson, but I think it's possible that God is also just being kind to Jonah. Jonah is spent physically, emotionally. He's a spiritual mess, and it is possible that God, not only is he doing something here in an object lesson, but also taking a moment, taking a knee, giving Jonah a little bit of respite, but that's not all that's happening. Look at verse 7. Oh, look at verse 6. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So God appoints the plant. It provides shade. The next morning, God appoints a worm to attack the plant, and then a scorching east wind to attack Jonah. The plant withers, Jonah becomes faint, and Jonah returns to his anger and self-pity. He confesses it's better for him to die than to live for a second time. First, he longs to die because God won't destroy the Ninevites. I'd rather die because you won't destroy the Ninevites. Now, I want to die because you did destroy the plant. And so God responds with the second question. 
because he's not seeing what he needs to see. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is it just for you to be angry about the plant? He just said in verse 4, do you do well to be angry? Because I didn't destroy the Ninevites. Now God says, do you do well to be angry? Because I did destroy the plant. Jonah's a mess. Jonah ignores the logic in God's question, the logic that we all sense in our laughter here. And he digs himself in. Yes, I do well to be angry. Yes, I'm just in being angry. Angry enough to die over this. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle? God is not publicly humiliating Jonah here. Jonah's alone on a hill, and God comes to him with fatherly discipline. Jonah, you're not seeing things correctly. Jonah, your heart is out of tune with mine. It is unjust for you to welcome mercy for yourself while wishing judgment on your enemies. You did nothing for this plant. You did not plant it. You did not tend it. You did not toil on its behalf. It grew up in a night. It was destroyed the next night. And you're so angry over it, you wish to die. Why, Jonah, do you have compassion on this plant? You wonder why? He has compassion on the plant because it's providing shade for him. It's doing something for him. The Ninevites who are repenting and trusting God are doing nothing for Jonah. His heart is unmoved because he doesn't care. He doesn't care about them. He cares about the plant because it's doing something for him. Jonah, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? 120,000 people made in my image. People who don't know their right hand from their left hand. People who are spiritually blind, blinded by the God of this age, dead in trespasses and sins. And Jonah, if that doesn't mean anything to you, Jonah, there are many cattle in Nineveh as well. If people's souls mean nothing to you, but plants mean everything to you, then maybe the presence of cattle will move your heart. Will cattle move your heart, Jonah? Is there any compassion in you? Has your heart been awakened at all to the mercy that you've received from my hand? Jonah's heart is dreadfully out of tune. And we need a new heart that will beat along with God's, a heart that's gripped by God's truth, a heart that's committed to God's love. And Jonah lacks this heart. God says, Jonah, love your neighbor. Jonah, love your enemies. Have my heartbeat for your enemies. And listen, if you don't, show, if you don't want me to show mercy toward my enemies, then Jonah, there is no mercy for you either. Jonah, you need to tune your heart to mine. You need a shelter near the cross where justice and mercy meet. Friend, if you don't trust Jesus, if you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian, you may find part of this message somewhat appealing. Love is trending in our culture right now. 
It is praiseworthy to not judge another person's sin, to show mercy, to, to lack judgmentalism, to leave the Ninevites to the Ninevites. But that's not exactly the message here. God says, I'm slow to anger. He does not say he doesn't get angry. Here's Exodus 34, 6, where all of the Old Testament language finds its origin. All the language that talks about God with these themes comes back to this moment when God appears to Moses and says, here I am, Moses. This is who I am. The Lord passed before him, Exodus 34, verse 6, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. That's the message we've got the entire time through this sermon. That's the message. But God continues. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Listen, God is always faithful to all that God is, all the time. Completely consistent. He is all that he is all the time. That means he is abounding in mercy and in steadfast love. It means he forgives sin. It also means that he will not clear the guilty. He will judge sinners and sin. But how do these things both be true at the same time? How can God on the one hand be abounding in steadfast love, ready to forgive iniquities, and not willing to clear the guilty. How does God do both at the same time? How can God show mercy to the believing Ninevites without clearing the guilty, without being guilty of clearing the guilty? The Ninevites are violent sinners. They were ruthless toward their victims. How could God clear them and not bring judgment? How is that just? That's what Jonah's wondering. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all of us, and are justified, that is, declared righteous by God, by His grace as a gift, not something we do, not something we work for. Though we are dead in trespasses and sins, we are declared righteous by God as a gift. How does this happen? Through the redemption, the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. That's how those who have fallen short of God's glory are declared righteous. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God introduces a substitute into the equation. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a satisfaction by his blood. Jesus dies on the cross. His blood satisfies the payment that we needed to pay because of our rebellion. And this is to be received by faith, Paul says. And this was to show God's righteousness, his holiness, because in his divine forbearance, his divine patience, God passed over former sins like the Ninevites. He passed over them. He didn't forget about them. He passed over them. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He passes over Ninevite sins until he comes to the cross. And then every believing Ninevite in Nineveh who trusted God, who turned from their sins in repentance, who had faith in him, who called on his name, their violent sins were counted against Christ the substitute. 
shelter near the cross where justice and mercy meet. It's in the cross where the Ninevite sins are paid for. Jesus assumes the full total penalty of the violent, ruthless sins of the Ninevites. Justice is therefore satisfied. And it's in the cross where the Ninevites are justified, where they're declared righteous. It's in the cross where the Ninevites receive mercy. Shelter at the cross where justice and mercy meet. So if you would not think of yourself as a Christian, here's what I long for you to hear this morning. I long for you to hear an invitation to come to Christ with repentant faith. Repentant faith. That's what the Ninevites displayed in Nineveh. A turning from sin and a calling out to God. A belief in God's word. Belief includes three things. Belief is knowledge of the truth. You have to know the right things. It includes a conviction that the truth is true. It's not just a body of knowledge, it's true. That's the second thing in, included with belief. And third, you're entrusting yourself to that truth. You're submitting in a way that this truth is true, come what may. In the cross of Jesus, God's mercy and justice meet. I implore you this morning to entrust yourself to that message to believe it, to be convinced of it, and to trust yourself to God. Genuine saving faith and belief is demonstrated by repentance. This is not an easy believe, low-cost assent to information. This is a turning away from sin and turning to God. This is a commitment to no longer orient your life around yourself and to orient it around God. That's what you're saying by trusting Christ. Repentant faith. Repentance that demonstrates the actuality and the genuineness of our faith. So if you haven't yet come to Jesus, come shelter near the cross this morning. Humbly acknowledge your sin and gladly rejoice over God's mercy. And he will tune your heart to his. So in conclusion, shelter near the cross where justice and mercy meet. The cross defeated sin's power, defeated it. For example, Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The cross defeated sin's power in our life. The cross also devours sin's penalty. There's nothing left for us. Here's Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The cross devoured sin's penalty. And the cross defeated sin's proponents. Colossians 2. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The cross defeated sin's proponents. And finally, the cross will one day destroy sin's presence. Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, 
adorned for her husband. This is what the cross does. Shelter near the cross and remind yourself of what Jesus has accomplished. The cross has defeated sin's power. It has devoured sin's penalty. It has defeated sin's proponents, and it will one day destroy sin's very presence. Praise God. Shelter near the cross where justice and mercy meet. Let the reality of what your sin cost Jesus to humble you as you think about God's grace toward others. Let the truth of what Jesus did to justify you make you glad. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for everything your cross has won for us. I pray that you would strengthen us by your word to shelter near the cross, to remain there mentally, emotionally, spiritually, to shelter near the cross so that spiritual humility would develop in greater and greater ways in our hearts. And so that gladness over your mercy would be a constant refrain in our hearts and minds. We have been saved. We have been set free. Help us to shelter near the cross. We pray these things in your name. Amen.